0: Everybody, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. This week, it's time for a little bit of sleight of hand. Actually, if you stay tuned to the end, Adam and I will reveal that we've been the same person all along, which means we must be talking today about Chris Nolan's 2006 movie about dueling magicians, The Prestige. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia.
1: And I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works.
0: We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch. We then watch them from our vantage as ministers, as theologians, and as people who love movies. Then we gather for a conversation with our guest. This week, our guest Tim Hughes has asked us to go watch The Prestige, and so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask him what the prestige has to do with life and ministry and theology and the world.
1: In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with the prestige for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be November 20th, Christ the King Sunday. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following.
0: But before we get to that point, we want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Tim Hughes is the associate pastor of Brown Memorial Park Avenue Presbyterian Church in Baltimore, Maryland. Tim is a community organizer and minister and has been active in working for justice and peace and equality in Baltimore. Tim, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me. I I can't believe I get to actually talk about my three favorite topics at the same time today, magic and movies and theology, that's like the other holy trinity. So I'm uh, <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Looking
1: forward to well, it. We're happy to have happy to have you here. Okay, so The Prestige is Christopher Nolan's 2006 movie about two rival magicians in Victorian London. It's got magic. It's got Victorian London intrigue. It has special reveals at the end. And in some ways, this movie was made in a lab for me. And so we need to say it up front that we are going to spoil the hell out of this movie. The themes that we're going to talk about only make sense in light of the whole film. So if you haven't seen the movie, it's very good. You should go and watch it and then come back.
0: We're not going to okay. wait, though. They're, they're, we're not going to give them no, time. No, we're not going to just... actually oh, wait. Okay. But, but okay.
1: That was like a nice pregnant pause, Matt, where where everyone gets to leave, but everyone who stays now gets to feel like they're in. A part of a secret club of it's magicians that, it's, like, it's
0: like the congregational meaning at the end of the worship service like right. we've given everyone a chance for the door but now you're stuck
1: now, now you have to really listen to what we have to say so robert angier and alfred borden are rival magicians obsessed with each other's careers in the movie the prestige they both go to extraordinary lengths for their magic but for different reasons In the process, they both lose their wives, they both lose their careers, they both kill each other, and they both, in strange ways, kills themselves. They are both divided people and two sides of the same warring soul. Tim, like most of Christopher Nolan's films, The Prestige is interested in big ideas, unorthodox storytelling, and psychological drama. Unlike a few other Chris Nolan films... (coughs) Interstellar, for instance, this story seems to hold up under close scrutiny. So why'd you pick The Prestige? What does it have to do with your life in ministry?
2: I mean, well, I guess I have to say that, first of all, I just loved it because it's about magic and magicians. There are some humiliating home videos of me doing magic shows for my family. um, And I, like, bought cheap cardboard gear and little foam balls and stuff, um, you know, (laughs) when I was a kid from catalogs. So, um, I was like in a target audience for a movie about magicians, but when I actually saw the movie and realized that it's really about belief, um, and wonder and about the craft of sort of entertainment and wonder, then I realized that it's asking questions that I ask all the time in my day job, uh, as a minister. So, you know, I think it's I think I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church where the the idea that magic and ministry have anything in common is totally offensive. Um, but I would say that any minister who gets in, in front of the room and hopes to hold their attention with a sermon um, for 20 to 30 to 40 minutes is uh, has got something in common with that magician who is desperately hoping to hold on to the audience. Um, and so I, you know, I just think the movie raises questions that that, that ministers already talk about all the time.
1: So when you were watching it for, how many times have you seen it?
2: I've probably seen it like somewhere between five and ten times.
1: So when you were watching it this time, what in particular stood out to you as uh, as relevant for the work that you're doing right now?
2: Well, I guess what I'm thinking about right now is the way in which you show up to ministry hoping that God is going to do something amazing um and yeah you know that even if that doesn't happen in the way you expect it you still kind of have a show to go through um you know when i was when i was in preaching class in seminary they told me that even if you realize your sermon is a dog you got to walk it proud um (laughs) and so you know when i see borden in the movie like doing these terrible like metal ring magic tricks that are just making people laugh at him and yet he's just going through them because he knows he has to finish the show. That's like worst case scenario ministry where you are where you don't even believe in your own product, you know, Um, but you're just you're just doing your job. Um, But then I would argue and maybe maybe uh, Matt doesn't agree with me, but I would argue that neither one of these guys has really ever given up on the idea of real magic. Um, And so on the one hand, you're like this lame, you know, craftsman. And on the other hand, you're a total mystic who's uh, who's hoping for something amazing to, to just sort of show up. And um, that's interesting to me as a person who gets out of bed every morning and like, thinks about what's going to happen during the day in the office.
0: I mean, I think with the metal rings, it's really interesting because I, I actually don't read it as being bad uh, magic, so to speak, uh, as being bad technique. I read him as actually being quite good at working with these metal rings and having absolutely no ability to sell it to the crowd. It seems like that's part of the tension in the film is between these mm. two different sides of craftsmanship or or maybe or or two different sides of of showmanship one is the craft of actually being able to put these rings in and you know and interlock them and the showmanship the um that Hugh Jackman's character has in spades but can't actually quite get the can't figure out the craft uh and so that's part of the I don't know that's kind of how I was I was reading those moments
1: Matt as you watched it what was uh, standing out to you as someone who's involved in the day-to-day ministry and how magic might uh, enter into your daily life?
0: Well, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. I, I guess I just wanted to first acknowledge that, like, this is a pretty good movie. I mean, this this might be Nolan's best film. Um, it's It's got to be this of Dark Knight. And I mean, we're not here to adjudicate that. But it's it so perfectly executes what it is, right? I mean, it's got that both that craft and that showmanship in such a good combination. It, it's almost like it's magical. Uh, <laughs> I, um, uh,
1: puns are always welcome on this show. Yeah.
0: I guess I'm, I guess Tim, I'm less interested at the end of the film and whether the characters really do believe in magic. Um, and maybe that, is a place I would love to hear you talk more about what what I came away from on this viewing was just thinking about the cost of doing the show for these two performers uh so it's it's that the that repetitive line that the good trick demands sacrifice uh I feel like I get that uh as a preacher um and I, I believe it whether or not it's true I mean that's part of the trick of it that that I believe that a, a sermon that feels like I've written it with blood is better than a sermon that feels like I've written it with ink. Um, which may or may not be true, but there's certainly um, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings when I feel like I'm writing something out of my soul. Or whether, whether where it's costing me something or where I feel like I'm deeply emotionally invested and kind of emotionally vulnerable in what I'm doing. Um, that feels real and authentic, and it has this feedback of being like, oh, this is the edge you should be living on, as opposed to something that is more rationally and kind of safely produced. Um, It speaks nothing to how effective any of that is to the person actually listening, but it is, I think, tempting for me as a a preacher to think about, oh, yeah, like good art requires this kind of sacrifice.
1: I was interested in this Yeats poem that's so that that haunts me where uh it's called the the choice and he says the intellect of man is forced to choose perfection of life or of the work and for for Yeats, as a poet he's saying you don't get to have both you either need to sacrifice the perfect life your roles as uh as spouse or as um as father or mother or um, as friend, all of those have to in some ways be uh, uh, be sacrificed in pursuit of art, of the, prefer- of the perfect art. And there's part of me that wants to say to Yeats, like, yeah, that's easy for you to say. But then when I start to think about all of those people who are transcendently good at art, they are typically really bad parents <laughs> and they're really bad spouses and they're not very good friends. And I mean, we've, we've sort of, um, we've, we've embraced Bob Dylan and any number of different times on this sh- show as an artist, but as a human being, he's kind of an asshole, <laughs> you know? And so, um, I think that that theme shows up in the movie. Uh, But what does that mean for us as ministers who might think of ministry as a craft or an art? I mean, do we have to choose to be truly great at preaching or to be truly great at ministry? Does it take a type of commitment that requires sacrifice?
2: I I think that the big difference between the, the sacrifice that a magician makes and the sacrifice that a minister makes is that the magician is obligated to hide it. You know, like the whole point is that it comes off like effortless because that's part of the that's part of the magic is that the uh, the magician is just talking and then this thing happens out of nowhere when in reality the magician practiced for like 20 hours and killed a bird (laughs) in the process. Um, And I think that when ministry goes wrong, because I know I've had that feeling where I've worked so hard on a sermon so that I can look like I'm just speaking directly from my heart when in reality I've practically memorized an entire manuscript um you know that's the magician work i think the the kind of sacrifice that you guys are holding up as as a positive is 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 maybe closer to actual jesus stuff you know where you are putting your sacrifice front and center uh, as a way of showing uh your investment and your love and and maybe that's where the movie goes dark at the end is that like they don't ever get anywhere near that place
1: you know the sacrifice that they're providing um is designed to be instrumental towards some egotistical ends
2: yeah it's about furthering their own career and if they have the idea that if anyone actually knew how hard they worked then it would be you know then it would be spoiled
1: right and then i get i get so many students in my classes who want to editorialize how hard it was for them to write their sermon and so they say this sermon you know I started at my desk and I started writing this and I started writing this. And I have to say over and over again, this is so boring. Stop that. Uh, yeah. Like, don't. Don't let everyone know how you're going to make this trick work, like just do the trick. Um, and there's so I feel like I'm sort of caught of two minds on the one hand, wanting to do that sort of sacrificial, vulnerable work of preaching, letting people know the, all of the hard work that's gone into to, to this moment yet at the same time I want there to be a little bit of mystery and intrigue in it too
0: totally and and part of the trick of that too is that it keeps uh it, it keeps moving the goalposts so you know if you um like going back and reading sermons that I wrote five years ago, the ones that I thought were amazing at the time, or the ones that I thought were super creative and authentic and magical, like they all read they all just terrible now to me, right? Because my sense of standards and my goalposts have changed. I think that's one of the things that we get in this film, too, is that there's a kind of um the push to do the next new thing is really powerful here. Both of these magicians are really good at the tricks that everybody already knows and what they're looking for is the thing that no one that no one can figure out so it's it's there's kind of a an innovation race happening underneath the surface of this all the crowds want to see something new they all come for the thing at the end they don't understand they want to see something that hasn't been done before and i i think you could argue that the innovation of it is what kind of gradually undoes these characters so i kind of wonder about that for ministry too i mean there's lots of pressure in ministry to be, um, especially in the church now, to be innovative and to be disruptive and to be entrepreneurial and all these kind of ministry buzzwords. Um, but I, and I think those 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 pressures are are there. They're not for me necessarily to critique, but I also think that there's something in the church about kind of the deep repetition of what we do. That my hope is that. Um, we're not just getting up there every Sunday trying to figure out something new, but we're also trying to hold to something that is um, something deeper and that the repetition will have some power to it, too.
1: Matt, I think you're right that this this movie is really concerned with the uh, the, the arms race, so to speak. You even see it in Tesla and Edison in those two characters. Sure. As, uh, uh as they're having their own particular little technological race. Uh, And you also see it because uh, Borden is his own engineer, but Angier has to hire another engineer to help him. And so they're always trying to figure out what's next. And there's part of me that wants to see this, uh, the parallel universe where there is no Angier and Borden has to do this trick over and over and over again for the rest of his life. And whether or not that will ever actually be uh, enough, too, right? If if the, do you need somebody else for the arms race to make sense? Um, and so as I as I think about this movie, it's uh, these personalities became become so important, and really they're the sort of same personality with different ends. I mean, pointed towards different ends. It's the craftsman side and the showman side. It's the one who wants the applause uh, and the other one who wants to transcend the material realm. He's Borden is a mystic, and Angier is um, is an egotist. <laughs> um, but they're both of Borden the same is, people.
2: Borden is doing the, the same old trick. He's got the double. He's got a double brother. Sorry, right. everyone. He's got a double brother. So... You know, he he dresses it up as magic and science and sends Zandir off looking for that. But in reality, he's not changed his act. He's just doing it, you know, in a, in a way that nobody could imagine.
1: Right. And and that's the thing. I, I think that they're the same person and that's what bothers them so much about each other. Um, and that in the end. Uh, the tricks are what people come for, but. The magicians want them to come for them, right? They they want to feel like those the applause is for them, not for the trick. Right. Right. Can I tell you about
2: this mega church experience that I had a, a couple of weeks ago?
1: Please. Yes, please do.
2: <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I have to say, I, I'm a member of a uh, somewhat traditional mainline Protestant church. And and had, it's been a very long time since I was in like a stadium seating Mega church situation, but I went to uh, I went to a church in Atlanta that has uh, that has like fifteen thousand members and seven campuses um, and really one preacher. Um, And if if the church knew where he was every week, they would just all overwhelm that campus. And the whole point of the campuses is so they can have capacity and they have different worship bands. And so they keep it a secret where he's actually going to show up. And then um, every other church has an empty stool. On the stage, and when the time for the sermon comes, a hologram of the minister appears and delivers the same sermon in every church. Um, and I wasn't even thinking about this movie or this podcast, but I felt like that was just straight up magic <laughs> um, happening in that space, and almost, uh, you know, positioning the minister like some sort of Obi Wan Kenobi character. You right. know? Uh, so, did
1: it look like that? I'm so I'm so interested in this. Like, did you did the was the hologram convincing?
2: well no one in the room believes he's there everyone knows about i mean the hologram itself is like a a gimmick you know um so so people are not under the illusion that he's there but he is you know did you see tupac when tupac came back at at
1: bonnaroo (laughs) It's, it's like that right and so it's so why not put it on a screen do you think I mean, is this its own technological arms race within churches right now? Because there are plenty of people who like beam their ministers around their particular campuses.
0: Right, I mean, is this innovation for innovation's sake, or is there something to be said? F- I mean, is there some greater value in it, I guess is my question.
2: I don't know. I think it's a tacit acknowledgement that you lose something when you don't have a physical human present. Right.
1: Um, you well, know, just but- the fact that that they think that each campus will be overwhelmed if they know where he's going to be means that they'd rather be in a place where there's a body than where there's beams of light.
2: Right. But here's where I have to make my confession. I was like emotionally moved by the like Coldplay band style worship service that happened there and uh, found the sermon compelling. (laughs) I was ready to leave like totally, you know, critical of the experience, but there was like a part of me that is not accessed by my 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 mainline worship experience. That was accessed by the megachurch,
1: and uh, and some of, was was some of that showmanship.
2: Yeah, I think it's like the 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 you know the Wizard of Oz on the gigantic screen. Like you
1: you 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 respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I still, I still do. I, I am caught as a as someone who teaches preaching and worship between trying to get people to pay attention to details so that their worship service doesn't seem shabby, but also giving them permission to not have to have the production values of Hollywood, right? Like, and that's a really difficult place to exist when you're in an arms race with a place like Hollywood or with Disneyland or these places that have unlimited amounts of resources to put on shows and spectacle, the the church is going to struggle. And at one point, the church had all of the money to do that. You know, these big, huge festivals in medieval Europe were put on by the church, and they were able to overwhelm people with the entertainment value of things. I don't think we have that capacity any longer, or very few of the churches do. It's interesting to me that there are churches out there that are still like, no, go buy the hologram machine. Like, we're doing it. (laughs) We're gonna we're gonna try and do it you know they did it at bonnaroo we're gonna do it and um and i admire it and also wonder if um it's uh if they're just bound to lose because of of what they're up against at what point are we gonna have like sermons that come attached with like industrial light and magic type of special effects
2: well, I think the Christopher Nolan movies are a great example. You know, like, uh, this is if this is his best movie, and it really might be, the, the special effects in this movie, which is about magicians, are, like, almost incidental. You know, the right. power of the movie is the plot. And, uh, and then you see a big, uh, you know, bloated nightmare like Interstellar, and you feel like he gave himself too much rope and he went off the rails. So, like, I feel like the special effects can enhance a powerful story in a, in a sermon or a movie. And they also can become the point, and that's when that's when you realize you've lost the heart of it.
0: If I knew this was gonna be an interstellar bashing fest, I would have come more prepared. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I mean I think there are days when I when I definitely feel a little bit like uh like bored in the mystic who is, you know, standing up there saying, Look, I can actually like push these metal rings into each other, but nobody cares because I can't do it with um with a laser light show. I mean, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of that sense of uh, frustration and envy that comes in being, a be, being in a, a kind of, um, more ascetic church setting.
1: How about you, Tim? Do you ever feel like if you had more resources, how much better could the worship be? Do you think?
2: Uh, well, I feel like, um, I actually am I'm, I'm more into the like what's the guy's name Michelle uh, Gondry. Yeah. You know like uh, less is more like the mm. like there's there is like we have had la- well last week we did um like an improv performance of Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches during the time for children um with a tent on wheels that the kids were walking through like that's that was there was some like production value but it was also never not ridiculous. Right. And I feel like the uh, the ridiculousness is what is what gets you away from the trap of feeling like it has to be perfect. Hmm. And I feel like there's you sometimes you can get a lot of a lot of the power of the artistic expression um, with some intentionally shabby (laughs) um, artifice, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and that may be one of the dividing lines here because you know, and it kind of is what we were saying before. There's a degree of, um, there's a there's a degree of kind of authenticity to that that you're just, we're just up here being who we are and we're having fun and we're not taking it too seriously. That doesn't really translate to being a magician on stage here, where they're they're specifically not allowed to be authentic. That the whole point is that it's all been a facade, um, and I. I I, I am I am grateful that I don't feel like, um, that that I feel like uh, my ministry my call is is not to be presenting those facades but rather to be able to say something that's more about all of who I am and all of who the church is.
1: Right, I I say right too much. Uh, I think magic also went that way for a little while with Penn and Teller and the amazing Jonathan and these these more recent musicians who wanted to be seen as as sort of like punk magicians um, or street who, magicians. or street musicians. They were trying to like push away from the showmanship style and make it sort of more down to earth. Uh, and to your point, Tim, about um, the shabbiness of it, I've seen some amazing concerts in huge venues that have production values that um, are uh, more expensive than what I make in a year by factors of a hundred. And then I've been on porches with people playing music, singing that have produced the same feeling in me, uh, the same sort of awe that comes with music, the sort of communal feel that can be gathered with that. And so it, it seems to me that that those who don't have the type of resources uh to do big production value stuff probably shouldn't try and should push more towards trying to feel like how do i create that living room feel uh they used to say like the great thing about neil young is he could make a stadium feel like a living room and i feel like there's a lot of ministers that are trying to make living rooms feel like stadiums yeah uh, you know and Um, and they want to sound like cold Coldplay and they want, they want to sound big. And, um, and I, at times think, no, man, you've, you've got where you've got the thing to bring people into a living room and guess what? People like to be in their living rooms. Uh, so it's, it's a hard, it's a hard act. To balance especially if you feel like you're a creative type of minister who wants to who wants more resources to try new things because you're running a little dry you know building another tent on wheels (laughs)
2: listen i'll never get tired of that (laughs) (laughs) i did this summer i did a storytelling workshop with uh kids in sandtown which is like a mile away from my church and where freddie gray was killed and uh i was a part of this community organizing workshop trying to get kids to like get in touch with the fact that they have had these powerful experiences either with the police or just in their life and that they can tell those stories in a way that will that will create change um and you i, I heard these kids telling these unbelievable stories in like tragically boring <laughs> terms hmm, right. you know uh like and, and so we just workshopped telling the story and everything that they said was true and powerful from beginning to end, but just by like learning how to roll it out and emphasize the right details and like paint an emotional picture, uh, you know, the stories were so much more powerful. So I don't think it has to be a stadium <laughs> per se, but uh, I do think there's something to be said for, for, for showmanship.
1: All right. I think that we've, uh, we've chewed some meat on this bone, Matt, let's move to preaching This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and we're looking at the lectionary passages for Year C, November 20th, Christ the King Sunday. This week, we have Jeremiah's Oracle of Woe. We have the famous Psalm 46, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters rise in foam. We also have Paul's letter to the Colossians, where he calls Christ the firstborn of all creation. And finally, we have uh, Jesus' conversation with the thieves on the cross in Luke's Gospel. And at which point he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Tim, as you look at these passages, uh, what stood out to you as you also watched The Prestige?
2: Well, uh, I guess here I have to confess that I read a book called The Divine Magician, which was expressly about the relationship between Jesus
1: and The Prestige. Reading so is not allowed. I'm not coming this at this. Podcast. You did a lot but of homework I'm for this. I did not I'm do not- all the homework.
2: <laughs> um but you know, he argues that uh, he argues that the death and resurrection of Jesus kind of moves through the stages of the pledge and the turn and the prestige. Um, if you consider sort of the life and teachings and and foretelling of death of Jesus as the pledge, then um, the death of Jesus, which no one expected is the turn, and then the resurrection is the prestige. And that's, I mean, that's really, that's interesting. But to me, what's even more interesting is the idea of the, uh, the Eucharist. You know, if you think of, especially in some traditions, the, 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 the Eucharist is done in a very flashy uh, kind of almost presentation kind of way. Um, the, the holding up of the elements and presenting them and declaring them as the, the body of Christ um, would, would be the pledge. And then the actual consumption of the elements uh, by the congregation is the turn and then the manifestation of the gathered people as the body of Christ is the prestige. Um, and I thought it was interesting to look at the full um, the full scope of the text beyond the, the thieves and see that the the sort of the institution of the Last Supper and the death of Jesus uh, kind of lined up side by side and thinking of that from that lens was really interesting to me.
1: right and and, not to mention the fact that there is the that hocus pocus comes from Hoc Est corpus, the uh, the the medieval Latin uh, mass, um, mm-hmm. and so you had a bunch of medieval peasants who couldn't understand Latin, who thought that when the the host was being um, was being prayed over and blessed, uh, thought that magic words were being spoken. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, yeah, I was thinking about this Luke passage too, um, and I, I think <clears throat> some of what I have to say kind of dovetails a bit. I mean, I um, the, the Luke passage is a really interesting selection for Christ the King Sunday. We don't often get to read Passion Week narratives when we're not in Passion Passion Week, so I would just encourage preachers and worship planners to make sure that this gets highlighted on Sunday because we don't so sort of rarely get to spend this kind of time with. Um, a crucifixion scene when we're not rushing through Good Friday. uh and there is a bit of um you know it, as, as a Christ the king um story it does have this a bit of reveal in it, right It's this um uh here's your reveal here's here's Jesus your king there he is struck up on the cross uh and there's a there's a bit of it that feels like the reveal at the end of this film, which is to say, uh, you know, you thought you were g gu- you thought this was one kind of act, but actually underneath it is just a tomb full of bodies that at the underneath this theater, there is a tomb full of huge jackmans that are making this thing work. At the end of it, this kingship or this lordship or this power is based on um the willingness of this man to die. Uh, except that of course, as as Tim has already alluded to, this isn't Jesus' final resting place. And the hope that we have is not based on the body just crucified, but also the body risen and alive. So I, I was reading um was reading some from Bonhoeffer from Letters and Papers from Prison this week, and he I was struck uh by a passage on his sense of the difference between hope and illusion. So Bonhoeffer is himself in this letter. He's been reading Dostoevsky. There's a Dostoevsky story about a a Bible reading man who's fallen on hard times and lost all glimmer of hope. And Bonhoeffer says that I'm still preoccupied with the claim that no person can live without hope and that people who have really lost all hope often become wild and evil. As he says, this leaves open the question whether hope in this case equals illusion. Certainly the significance of illusion for life is not to be underestimated, but for the Christian, I think the only important thing is to have well-founded hope. And even if illusion has sufficient power in people's lives to make life go on, how great then is the power that an absolutely grounded hope has for life, and how invincible such a life is. So this has been bouncing around in my head as my hope is that the church speaks with the language of hope and not just with the mechanism of illusion. That is, that kind of underneath our story is not just a tomb of dead Hugh Jackmans, but also, a, a, but rather, that our story is based on a, a risen body and not just a dead one. So, if I were going to try to thread those threads for Sunday, that's forgive the preaching, but that's where I would go.
2: Matt, do you think that maybe what you're talking about is the difference between true hope and false hope? You know, you're saying the mechanisms of illusion, but is it possible that it's just really the false hopes that uh, that people place their hope in instead of maybe something more authentic?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. I mean, i'm trying I'm still trying to unpack this this Bonhoeffer bit. and I think I certainly think that's what he's getting to is um the, you know he's trying to wrestle with whether or not, hope in and of itself has value and meaning for us, uh, which seems timely and relevant, uh, and whether or not that hope is by definition illusory. And I think his point is that when hope is grounded in the deep Christian story, that there's really something there to be, to to rest faithfully on. And when it's, but it, it also cannot be, there is absolutely such a thing as, as a false hope. Um, And so for me to ground hope faithfully in the Christian story is to ground it in, in the resurrection and the risen body, which is kind of where I was playing with, um, this text and and the film too.
1: Right. Or even the incarnation. I mean, I, I'm struck by the fact that Borden is one with division that, uh, he, he lives a single life with two people. Uh, and so they have to share all of this stuff. And at the end of the, the movie, Borden tells Angier, uh, half a life was good enough for each of us, but it wasn't good enough for anybody else in our life. Um, and I, I'm just sort of struck by the role of this divided person. And then the creeds where we say, you know, that Christ is God and human without division. Like that, there is this tunis present there, and that that tunis comes, um, unlike any of the other uh, tunis that we experience in our daily lives, and in some ways, placing our hope in that which can unite two is unique in this world, right? Like our hope in this thing that is unlike any other thing and incommensurable with history, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't make any real sense. Historically is, uh, is part of the grounding of this hope in, in a strange and mysterious way.
2: When, when, when you were talking about true hope and and false hope, it, it reminded me again of, uh, of the way in which sacrifice is talked about in the movie. It's as always like the dead bird in the hidden cage, you know, the, the death that no one knows about. And it reminded me of this idea of the scapegoat, which is essentially a function, a certain function of ritual and religion has been to unite people around uh, a victim, you know, mm-hmm. and, and in order for that to work, the victim, the, the function of the scapegoating has to be invisible. So, uh, you know, in like sort of in the in the ancient, tribes where someone gets thrown into a volcano in order to appease the gods, they have to truly believe that that gods are being appeased and they're not just focusing all their energy on a on a, on a shared enemy so that they can live together in peace. Um, and and a critique of Christianity has been, you know, that this idea that it's Jesus's death is what brings us back together or reconciles us with God, you know, can feel can feel problematic in the sense that Jesus is another one of those scapegoats that's the, the hidden away body. Um, and, and so I really like the idea that Jesus is different. And I feel like that's what you were trying to say earlier. Jesus is different because he reveals the suffering. Um, so rather than being hidden away, he, he reveals it. He's like the boy who says, you know, I know that there's a dead bird here. (laughs) Um, and so it's a, it's, it's a different way of thinking about what it means for Jesus to be the king, but also to be the victim. Um, and, and maybe that's something to do with the sort of two-in-one that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a tension in Christ the King, you know, that it matters that the king went through this death event. You know, yeah, that
1: this king is unlike any king that you've ever met. Right, sure. Yeah. I mean, as I was also looking at these lectionary passages, I'm reminded uh, and, and touched by Psalm 46 and this psalm of hope that... Oh, the mountains quake and the foam and the sea rises. Uh, God is in the midst of the city. And then at the end of the psalm, uh, the psalmist now taking on the, uh, the first person of God says, be still and know that I am God. Uh, and as I read that in light of this movie where two magicians uh, are so restless and obsessed both in their own ways. And this movie itself, at different times, recognizes that obsession with Michael Caine telling uh, Hugh Jackman that, you know, obsession is a young man's game. But they both grow old, or as old as they do grow, by being obsessed with the other. And as I thought about that in light of this command to be still, it began to dawn on me that maybe um, the opposite of stillness is not just action, it's obsession. It's being compelled by a force that just constantly moves you along so that stopping in any time or place is just not an option. Moreover, like stillness for a magician means that the audience might actually see all of the things that are hiding and that are hiding in plain sight that you need them to be distracted from. Uh, so stillness is that thing that exposes us um, for who we are as people before God, and, uh, and is in some ways a check on the obsessiveness that might propel us ever forward into the future.
0: Well, thanks to both of you, and I think we've probably uh, chewed on this as much as we possibly can. Uh, Tim, it has been so good to have you with us. Thanks so much for taking the time and uh, sending this movie our way and forcing us to think about the, the magic and the show of all of it. I appreciate your help.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me and and giving me an excuse to watch it again. (laughs) I appreciate
1: it. You're welcome.
0: All right, Adam, it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just another chance to get one little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. So Adam, what's your postlude for this week?
1: So as our recording schedule goes, this is the Friday after the election. Oh man, don't tell me. Matt, I have some news for you. Oh, man. Uh, so I ate a steady diet of punditry and opinion writers for nearly six months. And now, in the wake of this election and its results, uh, I, I really find it hard to read or watch anything. Yeah. Uh, I deleted my Twitter from uh, my, the Twitter application from my phone. I haven't read a single postmortem in any newspaper or any online publication. I haven't read a single explanation of what's happened. It's likely that I have some form of denial still living in me. Uh, but really I feel like I'm trying to piece myself back together again. And in doing so, I realize how divided I've been just as a human being and as my own soul, Um, felt like it, uh, not just that it was cleaved um, with the results of the election, but that it was um, fractured well before that. Uh, And this became really apparent to me when I was riding on the tee to a meeting in Boston recently. uh, And I realized how easy it was for me to just take out my phone and look at it and how Uh, I lost touch with the world around me so easily and so readily and how much I was interested in the works of other people and the opinions of other people to the detriment of just looking around me and noticing the world that I lived in. And so I realized that I've been trying to ease my anxieties over the past year with just more information, more reasoned argument, more historical precedent, none of which are bad things ultimately except that I think they began to take the place of, um, of seeking community of being present with people and not having my attention. So divided. And so now everywhere I go, I hear people talking about this election and, um, and its results. And I've had to exit probably a dozen conversations because I really have lost faith in words. And the last thing I want to sound like right now is just another pundit with an opinion because right now I don't have conclusions and I don't have answers and it's really hard for me as a preacher to lose faith in words. So basically I walk around right now trying to be present. I try not to talk very much. I try to look into other people's eyes and I try and smile at them. And I try to be okay with the fact that my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth. And so I stopped listening to podcasts. I've basically stopped watching TV. I, just listen to music and that music is all over the place yeah it's kind of a bummer I mean I wish I had more to say except that it's a it's a good reminder that there is a time to speak and a time to be silent mm-hmm. and in this season of my life I feel like it's time to be silent
0: I know the last thing you need is like um, a YouTube clip that you should go watch but maybe for our if any of our listeners did not, and are interested in uh, seeing uh, Colbert's like election night thing that he was doing on Showtime when he's doing a live special and he's clearly shocked by the election results. Um, they had clearly planned for a different outcome, and he does a little monologue. And one of the things he talks about pretty sincerely is about um, uh, he, he talks about the like the poison that you drink in the run up to these things, just a little bit that lets you feel, uh, righteous and angry and this kind of toxic combination that is really easy to overdose on so i i think um having a period of detox is helpful for all of us and and i as i said to you before we started recording i'm trying to figure out what the what the difference between um denial and self-care is right now and there's somewhere in there that uh gets me to be the place where I need to be so that I can keep doing the sacred work. Um,
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and I'm just realizing that sometimes the sacred work is just shutting up.
0: Yeah. um,
1: Yeah. After talking a lot. So.
0: Well, you you talked a little bit about just listening to music all over the place. There's been a song that's been in my playlist a little bit for the last couple of days, uh, which just kind of came somewhere from deep in memory. Um, and it's, it's been striking to me because as I've been thinking about, um, what it is to try to proclaim the gospel in in dangerous and difficult times. And, you know, especially as, uh, polls showed that the institutional church really supported a candidate that I find to be more or less antithetical to the gospel. So it kind of questions the point of t- the whole enterprise in some ways. Um, so here's where I am. I'm I'm listening to this old Simon and Garfunkel record called the Seven O'Clock Evening News slash Silent Night. It's a, kind of a song, and it's kind of a sound collage. So they, they're singing Silent Night in two-part harmony with this piano behind them. But underneath it, there's this gradually crescendoing narration of a fake news broadcast, all circa about 1966. So Paul Simon wrote the news broadcast. It's read by someone else. It's Concerns escalation in Vietnam and civil rights protesting and the death of Lenny Bruce and all this other stuff. And so as the silent night goes on and on, the, the newscast gets louder and louder without ever drowning out what, what the music itself. And so it's, it's two minutes long. It's a little precious, of course, but I also kind of think it's perfect. And, that, you know, it, it pushes the question of what these two things have to do with one another that this hymn is beautiful, but it can't drown out the words of violence and despair, and the violence and despair are real, but they can't quite shake the melodies either. So maybe the whole thing is just cynicism in a package, like it's Paul Simon's deeply felt critique of what's the point of this hymn if these things keep happening in the world, or maybe it's hope that persists even when confronted with all the bodies that are underneath the stage, right? So I'm mm-hmm. I'm living in the right. tension of it right now, and I don't know, but... And of course, I freely admit that the last thing America needs is nostalgia for a white male Boomer era liberalism that Simon and Garfunkel represent. But I do love me some Paul Simon, so I'm, I'm uh, hanging he's on this pretty one. pretty great. I'm yeah. At least until the Hamilton mixtape drops in full, this is what I'm listening to.
1: Right. I think. I, I mean. I think we might have to put together our uh, Technicolor Jesus post-election Spotify playlist, where we we try and <laughs> we try and help each other. I mean, I I've been listening to like aggressive uh rap music (laughs) to like the most benign boring jack johnson songs it's been strange (laughs) i mean i mean you you have silent night uh and i've been listening to run the jewels and they have a song called a christmas fucking miracle (laughs) so these are what i listen to yeah sure (laughs) um i but somehow that sounds strangely appropriate uh for this for this time
0: well that about wraps it up for this episode but we are not quite done we still need our homework for next time next time we're going to do something a little different we're going to go see a new release in the theaters Chaz howard is the campus chaplain at the university of pennsylvania and he says we should go watch dr strange so we're going to do it We're going to come back in a few weeks and talk about Dr. Strange with Chaz and some of our Advent lectionary. We're getting into the new liturgical year. So I'm going to look forward to that.
1: Yeah, me too. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend, come find us on Facebook. If you have song suggestions that you'd like to give to Matt and I in order for us to um, better understand our lives as ministers and a sort of post-2016 uh, election. Uh, send them our way. I'll listen to them. I, I got plenty of time. I don't, I'm i not even on my phone. I don't even read the internet any longer. Alright. Thanks for listening. Every little bit helps find other people find the show. Uh, let me try them. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, I don't even let it... I don't even read the internet any longer. Uh, Adam just we'll totally see. totally broke the
0: outro for this show, and it's the biggest laugh I've had in four days, so I appreciate <laughs> all of this moment. Uh,
1: oh, boy. Uh, so, everyone, thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, and if you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend uh send us some song suggestions so that uh that we can get through our day and continue to make more shows we love doing this and we hope that you like it too thanks matt thanks adam
0: let blow your mind pick a verse in it verse with every line i'll need a volunteer how about you with the eyes come on down to the front
1: stay right here and don't be shy i have you come traveling have your mind babbling people trying to inherit the skills so they have- some
0: classes and I see mine free